Greetings and salutations. I am Ken Barrios, your success coach. I hope you unleash your talents and maximize your impact without compromising your time. It is my pleasure to read the 16 Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill, written in 1928 and now public domain. My hope is that you will take from these small segments of reading the insight and wisdom of a philosophy that has over a hundred years of practical experimentation. With that said, let us begin. It is a well-known fact that the church factions, jealousy, etc., often lead to disagreements which make a change in leaders essential. Reverend Welshimer was steered around this common obstacle by unique application of the law of imagination. When a new member comes into his church, he immediately assigns a definite task to that member, one that suits the temperament, training, and business qualifications of that individual as nearly as possible. And to use the minister's own words, he, quote, keeps each member so busy pulling for the church that there is no time left for kickering or disagreeing with other members, quote. Not a bad policy for application in the field of business or in any other field. The old saying that, quote, idle hands are the devil's best tools, quote, is more than a mere play upon words, for it is true. Give any man something to do that he likes to do and keep him busy doing it, and he will not be apt to degenerate into a disorganizing force. If any member of the Sunday school misses attendance twice in a succession, a committee from the church calls to find out the reason for the failure to attend. There is a committee's job for practically every member of the church. In this way, Reverend Wilshimer delegates to the members themselves the responsibility of rounding up the delinquents and keeping them interested in church affairs. He is an organizer of the highest type. His efforts have attracted the attention of businessmen throughout the country, and times too numerous to be mentioned, he has been offered positions at fancy salaries by banks, steel plants, business houses, etc., that recognize in him a real leader. In the basement of the church, Reverend Wilshimer operates a first-class printing plant where he publishes weekly a very credible church paper that goes to all the members. The production and distribution of, the, of this paper is another source of employment, which keeps the church members out of mischief, as practically all of them take some sort of an active interest in it. The paper is devoted exclusively to the affairs of the church as a whole, and those of the me individual members. It is read by each member, line by line, because there is always a chance that each member's name may be mentioned in the local news. The church has a well-trained choir and an orchestra that would be a credit to some of the largest theaters. Here, Reverend Bushmer serves the double purpose of supplying entertainment and, at the same time, keeping the more temperamental members who are artists employed so that they also remain out of mischief. Incidentally, giving them a chance to do that which they like best. To the late Dr. Harper, who was formerly president of the University of Chicago, has one of the most efficient college presidents of his time, he had a penchant for raising funds in large amounts. It was he who induced John D. Rockefeller to contribute millions of dollars to support the University of Chicago. It may be helpful to the student of this philosophy to study Dr. Harper's technique, because he was a leader of the highest order. Moreover, I have his own word for it that his leadership was never a matter of chance or accident, but always the result of carefully planned procedure. The following incident will serve to show just how Dr. Harper made use of his 
of imagination and raising money in large sums. He needed an extra million dollars for the construction of a new building. Taking inventory of the wealthy men in Chicago to whom he might turn for the large sum, he decided upon two men, each of whom was a millionaire. Both were bitter enemies. One of these men was, at, at that time, the head of the Chicago Street Railway, Railway System. Choosing the noon hour, when the office force and this man's secretary in particular would be apt to be out at lunch, Dr. Harper nonchalantly strolled into the office and, finding no one on guard at the, at the outer door, walked into the office of his intended victim, whom he surprised by his appearance unannounced. My name is Harper, said the doctor, and I am the president of the University of Chicago. Pardon my intrusion, but I found no one in the outer office, which was no mere accident, so I took the liberty of walking on in. I have thought of you and your street railroad system many, many times. You have built up a wonderful system, and I understand that you have made lots of money for your efforts. I never think of you, however, without its occurring to me that one of these days you will be passing out into the great unknown, and after you are gone, there will be nothing left as a monument to your name. Because others will take over your money, money has a way of losing its identity very quickly, as soon as it changes hands. I have often thought of offering you the opportunity to perpetuate your name by permitting you to build a new hall out of the university grounds and naming it after you. I would have offered you this opportunity long ago had it not been for the fact that one of the members of our board wishes to wishes the honor to go to Mr. X, a.k.a. the streetcar's head enemy. Personally, however, I have always favored you and still favor you, and if you have your permission to do so, I'm going to try to swing the opposition over to you. I have not come to ask for any decision today. However, I was just passing I was just passing and thought a good time to drop in to meet you. Think the matter over. If you wish to talk to me about it again, telephone me at your leisure. Good day, sir. I'm happy to have had this opportunity to meet you. With this, he bowed himself out without giving the head of the streetcar company a chance to say either yes or no. In fact, the streetcar man had very little chance to do any talking. Dr. Harper did the talking. That was as he planned it to be. He went into the office merely to plant the seed, believing that it would germinate and spring into life in due time. His belief was not without foundation. He had hardly returned to his office at the university when the telephone rang. The streetcar man was on the other end of the wire. He asked for an appointment with Dr. Harper, which was granted, and the two met in Dr. Harper's office the next morning. The check for a million dollars was in Dr. Harper's hands an hour later. Despite the fact that Dr. Harper was a small, rather insignificant-looking man, it was sat, said of him that, quote, he had a way about him that enabled him to get everything he went after, quote. And as to this, quote, way, that, was, that he was reputed to have had, what was it? It was nothing more or less than his understanding of the power of imagination. Suppose he had gone to the office of the streetcar head and asked for an appointment. Sufficient time would have elapsed between the time he called and the time when he would have actually seen this his man to have enabled that latter to anticipate the reason for his call and also to formulate a good logical excuse for saying no. Hmm. Suppose, again, he had opened his interview with a streetcar man something like this. The universe, quote, the university is badly in need of funds, and I have come to you to ask for your help. You have made lots of money, and you owe something to the community to which you made it. 
which perhaps is true, if you will give us a million dollars, we will place your name on the new hall that we wish to build. What might have been the result? In the first place, there would have been no motive suggested that was sufficiently appealing to sway the mind of the streetcar man. While it may have been true that he owed something to the community from which he made a fortune, quoted, he probably would not have admitted that fact. In the second place, he would have enjoyed the position of being on the offensive instead of the defensive side of the proposal. But Dr. Harper, shrewd in the use of imagination as he was, provided for just such contingencies by the way he stated his case. First, he placed the streetcar man on the defensive by informing him that it was not certain that Dr. Harper could get the permission of his board to accept the money and the name of the hall after the streetcar man. In the second place, he intensified the desire of the streetcar man to have his name on that building because of the thought that his enemy and competitor might get the honor if it got away from him. Moreover, and this is by no accident either, Dr. Harper made a powerful appeal to one of the most common of all human weaknesses by showing his streetcar man how to perpetuate his own name, all of which required a practical application of the law of imagination. Dr. Harper was a master salesman. When he asked men for money, he always paved the way for success by planting in the mind of the men, of the man of whom he asked it a good sound reason why the money should be given, a reason which emphasized some advantage accruing to the man as a result of the gift. Often, his this would take on the form of a business advantage. Again, it would take on the nature of the appeal to that part of the man's nature, which prompts him to wish to perpetuate his name so that it will live on after him. But always, the request for money was carried out according to a plan that had been carefully thought out, embellished and smoothed down with the use of imagination. While the law of success philosophy was in the embryonic stage, long before it had been organized into a systematic course of instruction and reduced to the textbooks the author was lecturing on this philosophy in small towns in Illinois, one of the members of the audience was a young life insurance salesman who had but recently taken up the, that line of work. After hearing what was said on the subject of imagination, he began to apply what he had heard to his own problem of selling life insurance. Something was said during the lecture about the value of allied effort, through which men may enjoy greater success by cooperating effort, through a working arrangement under which each boosts the, the other interests of the other. Taking this suggestion to his cue, the young man in question immediately formulated a plan whereby he gained the cooperation of a group of businessmen who were in no way connected with the insurance business. Going to the leading grocer in his town, he made arrangements with the grocer to give a $1,000 insurance policy to every customer purchasing no less than $50 worth of groceries each month. He then made it part of his business to inform people of this arrangement and brought in many new customers. The grocery man had a large, neatly lettered card placed in the store informing his customers of this offer for free insurance, thus helping himself by offering all the customers an inducement to do all their trading in the grocery line with him. Break, break. I would like to have a quick word from our sponsor. Thank you for your time. Let's get back to the reading. This young life insurance man then went to the leading gasoline filling station, owner in town, 
and made arrangements with him to ensure all customers who purchased all their gasoline, oil, and other motor supplies from him. Next, he went to the leading restaurant in town and made a similar arrangement with the owner. Incidentally, his alliance proved to be quite profitable to the restaurant man, who promptly began an advertising campaign in which he stated that his food was so pure, wholesome, and good that all who ate at his place regularly would be apt to live much longer. Therefore, he would insure the life of each regular customer for $1,000. The life insurance salesman then made arrangements with a local builder and a real estate man to insure the life of each person buying property from him for an amount sufficient to pay off the balance due on the property in case the purchaser died before the payments were completed. The young man in question is now the general agent for one of the largest life insurance companies in the United States, with headquarters in one of the largest cities in Ohio, and his, his income now averages well above $25,000 a year. The turning point in his life came when he discovered how he might make practical use of the law of imagination. There is no patent on his plan. It may be duplicated over and over again by other life insurance men who, knew, who know the value of imagination. Just now, if I were engaged in selling life insurance, I think I should make use of this plan by allying myself with a group of automobile distributors in each of the several cities, thus enabling them to sell more automobiles and at the same time providing for the sale of a large amount of life insurance through their efforts. Financial success is not difficult to achieve after one learns how to make practical use of creative imagination. Someone with sufficient initiative and leadership and the necessary imagination will duplicate the fortunes being made each year by the owners of a 5 and 10 cent stores by developing a system of marketing that the same sort of goods now sold in these stores with the aid of vending machines. This will save a fortune in clerk hire, insure against theft, and cut down an overhead of store operation in many other ways. Such a system can be conducted just as successfully as food can be dispensed with the aid of automatic vending machines. The seed of the idea has been here sown. It is for yours for the taking. Someone with an inventive nature of mind is going to make a fortune and at the same time save thousands of lives each year by perfecting an automa automatic railroad crossing quote, control that reduces the number of automobile accidents on crossings. The system, when perfected, will work somewhat after this fashion. A hundred yards or so before reaching the railroad crossing, the automobile will cross a platform somewhat on the order of a large-scale platform used to weigh heavy objects, and the weight of the automobile will lower a gate and ring a gong. This will force the automobile to slow down. After the lapse of one minute, the gate will again rise, and the car may continue on its way. Meanwhile, there will have been plenty of time for the observation of the track in both directions to make sure that no trains were, are approaching. Imagination, plus some mechanical skill, will give the motorist this much-needed safeguard and make the man who perfects the system all the money he needs and much more besides. Some inventor who understands the value of imagination and has a working knowledge of the radio principle may make a fortune by perfecting a burglar alarm system that will signal police headquarters and at the same time switch on lights and ring a gong in the place about to be burglarized with the aid of apparatus similar to what is known now used for broadcasting. Any farmer who, with enough imagination to create a plan, plus the use of the list of all the automobile licenses issued in his state, may easily work up a clientele of motorists who will come to his farm and purchase all the vegetables he can produce and all the chickens he can raise. 
thus saving him the expense of hauling his products to the city. By contracting with each motorist for the season, the farmer may accurately estimate the amount of produce he should provide. The advantage of the, to the motorist occurring under the arrangement is that he will be sure to sure of direct from the farm produce at less cost than he could purchase it from the local dealers. The roadside gasoline filling station owner can make effective use of imagination by placing a, la- a lunch stand near his filling station and then doing some attractive advertising along the road in each direction, calling attention to his, quote, barbecue, quote, homemade sandwiches, or whatever else he may wish to specialize on. The lunch stand will cause the motorists to stop. Many of them will purchase gasoline before starting on their way again. These are simple suggestions involving no particular amount of complication in connection with their use, yet it is just such use of imagination that brings financial success. The Piggly Wiggly self-help store plan, which made millions of dollars for its originator, was a very simple idea which anyone could have adopted. Yet, considerable, considerable imagination was required to put the idea to work in a practical sort of way. The more simple and easily adapted to a need an idea is, the greater its value. As no one is looking for ideas which are involved with great detail or in any manner complicated. Imagination is the most important factor entering into the art of selling. The master salesman is always one who makes systematic use of imagination. The outstanding merchant relies upon imagination for the ideas for which to make his business excel. Imagination may used effectively in the sale of even the smallest articles of merchandise, such as ties, shirts, hosiery, etc. Let us proceed to examine just how this may be done. I walk into one of the best-known <laughs> herbardasheries in the city of Philadelphia for the purpose of put chasing some shirts and ties. Purchasing some shirts and ties. As I approached the tie counter, a young man stepped forward and inquired, Is there something you want? Now, if I had been the man behind the counter, I would have asked that question. He ought to have known, but... By the fact that I had approached the tie counter, that I wanted to look at ties. I picked up two t- two or three ties from the counter, examined them briefly, then laid them down, but one light blue, which somewhat appealed to me. Finally, I laid this one down also and began to look through the remainder of the assortment. The young man behind the counter then had a happy idea. Picking up a gaudy-looking yellow tie, he wound it around his fingers to show how it would look when tied and asked, isn't this a beauty? Now, I hate yellow ties, and the salesman made no particular hit with me by suggesting that a gaudy yellow tie is pretty. If I had been in that salesman's place, I would have picked up the blue tie, for which I had shown a decided preference, and I would have wound around my fingers so as to bring out this appearance after being tied. I would have known that my customer wanted by watching my kinds of ties that he'd been picked up and examined. Moreover, I would have known the particular tie that he liked best by the time he held it in his hands. A man would not stand by a counter and fondle a piece of merchandise which he does not like. If, given the opportunity, any customer will give the alert salesman a clue as to the particular merchandise which should be stressed in an effort to make a sale. I then moved over to the shirt counter. Here I was met by an elderly gentleman who asked, Is there something I could do for you today? Well, I thought to myself that if he ever did anything for me, it would have been 
it would have to be today, as I might have never come back to that particular store again. I told him I wanted to look at shirts and describe the style and shirt color I wanted. The old gentleman made a quite a hit with me when he replied by saying, quote, I am sorry, sir, but they're not wearing that style this season, so we're not showing it, quote. I said I knew, quote, they were not wearing that style, but I, for which I had asked, and for the very reason, among others, I was going to wear it, providing I could find it in stock. If there's anything which nettles a man, especially the type of man who knows exactly what he wants and describes it in the moments he walks into the store, is to be told that, quote, they're not wearing it this season, quote. Such a statement is an insult to a man's intelligence or to what he thinks is his intelligence and in most cases is fatal to a sale. If I were selling goods, I might think that I pleased about a customer's taste, but I surely would not be so lacking in tact and diplomacy as to tell a customer that I would that I thought he didn't know his business. Rather, I would prefer to manage tactfully to show him that I believe to be more appreciated appropriate merchandise than what which he had called if what he wanted was not in stock one of the most famous high-paying paid writers in the world was has built his fame and fortune on the sole discovery that it is profitable to write about that which people already know with which they are already in accord the same rule might well apply to the sale of merchandise the old gentleman finally put down some sort of boxers shirt box and began laying out shirts which were not even similar to the shirt for which I had asked. I told him that none of these suited and I started to walk out and he asked if I would like to look at some nice suspenders. Imagine it. To begin with, I do not wear suspenders and furthermore, there was nothing about the, any my manner or bearing to indicate that I might like to look at suspenders. It is proper for a salesman to try to interest a customer in wares for which he makes no inquiry, but judgment should be used and take care to offer something which the salesman re has reason to believe the customer might want. I walked out of the store without having bought either shirts or ties and feeling somewhat resentful because I had been so grossly misjudged as to my taste for colors and styles. A little further down the street, I went into a small one-man shop which had shirts and ties on the display window. Here, I was handled differently. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day, and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor.